We're in this series right now called Problems with the Bible. That's what we're calling it. And I remember a few weeks ago we posted about this series uh, on Facebook. I said, hey, we're doing this series where we want to create a safe space to wrestle with difficult questions about the Bible for people. And somebody right away responded and said, the only problem with the Bible is that people don't do what it says. And we're like, you're exactly the reason we need to have this series. <laughs> like, you, sir, are it. But, 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 because the reality is we don't actually believe the Bible has problems, but a lot of people have problems with the things that the Bible says, and we want to try and do our best to create environments where we can ask those questions and sort those out in community. And that's something that's very, very core uh, to us. That's one of our core values is that we have conversations that we always talk about, about the Bible. And also on that post, our, our great friend JP uh, said, oh, I want to come and be a part of that. And he was already scheduled to speak. And then, and then Don's like, oh, well, are you available October 20th? And he's like, no. And we're like, did you forget you're supposed to actually speak in this series? Like, I couldn't tell if he was joking or not. And so I was like, JP, what are you, you are coming, right? But he is here and we're very excited. And I just want to say this um, about, about JP. He, he's the president of North Point Bible College in Grand Rapids. I'm wearing, I'm wearing the shirt right now. Don and I are both students in his master's program. And so we, he's been a person that has helped us both sort out some of the problems that we've had with the Bible. Uh, because we, we have them too. There are things we read and we're like, I, I don't get it. I, I don't understand it. And we've each been able to spend about 20 like, straight hours of classroom time with him, learning from him, and it was life-changing for me. And, the, the, and I believe that the time you're going to spend with him right now is going to be life-changing for you. So right, right away when we were like, hey, let's do this, we're like, we need to get him in to just share a, a, like a little bit of that wisdom with all of you guys. I know we can't do 20 hours of J.P. Dorsey. I wish we could. We would do it if we could. Uh, it would be really good. It was, it was one of the most uh, edifying and beneficial things for me uh, that I've ever experienced was being in that class. So I just want to tell you, you have the best today. He's an amazing teacher, uh, and I want you guys to give it up for uh, Pastor J.P. Dorsey. Thanks, man. Thanks, man. Morning. I don't know. I don't know if it's on. You want to check my butt? You don't? He says I'm good, by faith. Okay. <laughs> Pastor Jim Wigan checked my, checked my butt. It was really awkward. All right. Another, another church. Don't go there. I'm just kidding. Fantastic people. It's good to be with you this morning. And uh, I'm sorry we don't have 20 hours. Some of you are like, I'm glad we don't have 20 hours. That would be a long time. But I uh, love uh, your pastors, just great friends and great people. And um, really been a joy to build our friendship with you guys over the last number of years. We love you guys and believe in you, 110%. So glad to be here with you guys. Don't you guys love your pastors? Yeah, come on, I think you can do better than that. Come on, don't you love your pastors? You got one woot. I don't know, who did the woot? Who did the woot? Was that you? Was that you? you did the woot? The woot was from him. That's your favorite, that's the best person in the church right there. They the woot. They, that's not true? That's not, he said, I thought it was like, actually it's kind of true, I'm pretty amazing. So obviously this morning, uh, we're, we're not going to have time to, to work through uh, everything that we might want to work through in terms of thinking about Scripture. I actually thought the name of the series was What's Wrong with the Bible, which would have been a slightly even more provocative title, and you could have had more comments on your Facebook post. I did mess with them. I, I said, it sounds like a great thing. I'd love to be there knowing that I was scheduled, and I apologize for that. Probably, did that cause anxiety? Was that okay? A little bit of anxiety? That's good. And brothers and all that. How many like to cause a little bit of anxiety, if you're being honest? You're just like, ah, I'm that person. Just a little bit. Just a little bit. 
Well, I'm going to try to, uh, this morning, uh, accomplish three things if I can. And if, no, just two. Okay, I'll make it two. Uh, three things this morning if I can in a fairly short amount of space. And they can all orbit around one idea, though, and that is I'd like us to kind of try to distance ourselves for a moment from perhaps the way that we've thought about Scripture, or more precisely, what we've thought Scripture is designed to accomplish, and kind of pull ourselves away from that. We're going to come back, don't worry. I know you're in church and someone just told you to pull yourself away from Scripture. That's not good. We're going to come back. But I want us to pull ourselves away a little bit and actually look at Scripture to distance ourselves from Scripture. And then we'll come back to Scripture. And so my hope is over about the next 35, 40 minutes together that uh, for some of us, maybe we're already on this journey and it'll just be affirmation of what we're already thinking about and how we're already thinking. For some of us, uh, it may be a brand new way of thinking and that's okay too. And for others of us, I'll get done and you'll be like, that dude's a complete heretic. And they'll, they'll fix everything that I'm about to say uh, next week. Are you guys speaking next week? Is it, no, you're not. So it'll be two weeks at least before it gets spoken, or three weeks or four weeks, whatever it is before it gets fixed. Or maybe it'll be a memo out to the church. No, we don't believe anything that guy said. So uh, those three things we'll, we'll kind of handle in this order. Uh, the first thing I wanna do is talk about why Scripture maybe does not mean what we think it means in terms of what it is actually designed to accomplish in our lives. The second thing I want to talk about, we'll try to kind of recover from that for a moment, is to uh, really underscore that Scripture is, in fact, reliable. It is historical. It is something that we can depend on, but maybe for something different than we have thought about it for in the past. And the third, if I can, I'd like to take my first point of reconfiguring what Scripture is for and push that to its logical implication, and that is that, that really the real need we have, and perhaps one of the reasons that we have so much personal need in the church, is that we've been asking Scripture to do what only the Lord Jesus Christ can do, that perhaps we've actually put Scripture and scriptural truth in the place of the imminent presence of God, the imminent presence of Jesus in our lives. And by the way, some of us, the most, the most Pentecostal, charismatic, spiritual among us can do this and can be guilty of it. We love to contain God. We sang it this morning, right? I wanted to make a little box for you. We love to contain God. And he's just like, yeah, maybe not today or ever. Uh, that's the way he rolls. So why don't we pray and uh, we'll get rolling a little bit. Does that sound okay? Sound like a good plan for us over the next 35, 40 minutes or 20 hours or whatever we end up spending? <laughs> That'll be fantastic. I'll just look for nods and sleepiness and, and, and we'll stop at that point. How about that? That sounds like a deal. Why don't we pray? Father, we thank you that we don't have to, to beg you to be present. We don't even have to ask you to be present, that you just delight to be with your people. And I'm grateful for that, that no matter how we've come this morning, we can't pray hard enough. We can't listen attentively enough. We can't give enough. We can't worship with pure hearts enough. All we can do is come into your presence and joyfully find out that you are more delighted to meet us where we are at than we are in meeting you. That you are the one who has been waiting. And that's true for us whether we're a Christ follower today or whether we're not. You are the one who has been waiting. You exert yourself on us. And so God, I pray that we'd all just breathe a big sigh of relief in the spirit today that we can't get you to come down, you already have. You've already come to meet with us and that all the pressure of trying to get you to do anything or love us is off. 
You've done that. You've exerted yourself in Christ. And we just sit in your presence and we ask you now in the freedom of that grace for you to have your way in our lives. We sit at your feet and we ask you to help us become the kind of people you want us to be. Help it be true that in some small way that when someone encounters a person from Courage Church, they encounter a little portrait, a little miniature experience of what it might be like to know you. We pray we'd become that kind of people. We don't just proclaim a truth, we proclaim the Christ with our lives, with our love, with our care, our compassion. So transform us today, we ask, by the reality of your presence in this place. We ask in Jesus' name, and everybody said... Amen. Fantastic. So I apologize for the formality of the structure this morning, but if we're going to get those kinds of things done in this amount of time, we're going to have to be kind of, is that okay? Cool, just be a little bit structured. So uh, the first thing that I want to do, as I said, is kind of reevaluate maybe a little bit uh, what Scripture might be for, and I want to maybe tease that out by just giving you a statement to start with. And the statement is this, is that Christ is ultimately the source and object of our faith The scriptures are what shape our faith. So so the scriptures are not generative of your faith. If you are a Christ follower here today, ultimately, it was not because you encountered the Bible that you are a Christian. It is because you haven't had an encounter with the Christ that you are a Christian, right? This is actually quite important Because I think that, and I guess I'm not alone in this, that many Christians struggle with their faith. They struggle with how do I how do I get more faith, whatever that might mean? Or how do I get more solidity or foundation to my faith? Or maybe we ask the opposite question. I struggle with doubt, and what might that mean for my faith? How do those two things live in the same space? I will tell you that uh, you are in good company. My middle name may as well be Thomas. I've been a doubter from day one as a follower of Jesus Christ, and I still am. I have my daily existential crisis. Anybody have one of those? <laughs> Just me. Okay, me and you. You and me, we can hang out. We can have a support group for each other. That is me. But funnily enough, even though you and I know that we can't read enough Bible to generate faith, like how many of you have tried to do that? You're like, I am having this crisis of faith. Let me open the Bible. And you flip open to Ezra or or whatever or Numbers, and you're like, oh my, this is not helping at all. Or you open up to something like the the Canaanite genocide. You're like, yeah, definitely a help uh, to my faith in this moment. And you know, and I know what we need is Jesus But somehow we're trying to figure out what is the relationship between Scripture and my encounter with Jesus? What is the relationship between those two things? That's what we're trying to figure out. So we spend all of our time trying to find some Scripture, some passage that is going to be life-giving to us. But I would actually argue that that's a a little bit backward. Um, That that is actually a little bit of putting the cart before the horse. In fact, and I can just, if we can, I want to just take a little bit of a a walkthrough uh, the Gospel of, of John. Is it okay if I come down off of here? Will anything bad happen? Uh, some, some churches, there's like a, a thing. If you step down off the platform, the sound goes crazy, but that's not going to happen. We will see. Are you ready? Are you ready? We'll do an experiment. Oh, I felt good. Okay, nothing. All right, good. We're in good shape. All right, that's fantastic. So, um, 
I want to do just a little bit of a walkthrough in the Gospel of John, if we can, because as we walk through it, what we'll see is something that's a little bit surprising, because I think we kind of have this idea that, like, I'm going to tell you something today, and it's going to be in the Bible, and we're going to believe something true, and we're going to respond to it. And that's certainly one model of encountering Christ. But the funny thing is, that's actually not how my encounter with Christ began, and probably for a lot of us was not how your encounter with Christ began. My encounter with Christ began, I'm walking along minding my own business on LSD, and Jesus just basically throws me down on the ground and is like, by the way, you're becoming a Christian today. I didn't really have a choice, and I only knew one Bible verse. Oh, I messed up the camera. Hi. Um, hello, all you people in TV land. Um, I, I, I knew one Bible verse. It was just like, all those who call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ shall be saved. King James, you know, shall. That was it. That's all I knew. But that wasn't the beginning of it. Some of us, we probably just, we were in a particular moment of crisis. We cried out to the Lord. Maybe it was an addiction. Maybe it was an emotional sort of thing that was happening. Maybe it was a conviction. Like, oh my goodness, I've totally screwed up my life. And you cried out to the Lord. And it wasn't your Bible that saved you. It was the Lord Jesus Christ. He was the one that came down to meet you and encounter you. And yet, we will, Sunday after Sunday after Sunday, day after day after day, we will go to like, say, how do I build my faith? And we will do exactly the opposite of what our experience teaches us to do. Aren't we crazy? So I just, if I can, I want to reinforce for just a few moments from Scripture that Scripture is actually not the best starting place for your faith. But an encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ continues, even as a Christ follower, to be the best place, the best starting place for your faith. So if we just kind of take a walk through the Gospel of John, and we just look at sort of situation after situation. We have John the Baptist. John the Baptist's story, of course, he is a Christ follower. It starts off with him being in the womb, and he decides to have this little, like, tremor, little Holy Ghost tremor in the womb. He's leaping in the womb, kicking. He's doing some kind of Jericho march in utero. I don't know what's happening in there. But something is happening where he is not even capable at this point of interacting with words in Scripture, but he's having an encounter with God. He forgets all that, doesn't know what's going on. He's born, and he's hanging out with his cousin Jesus, kind of not figuring out what's going on with Jesus yet. And at some point, he's hanging out one day, and it dawns on him, you're the guy. Like, you're the guy. And he sees a dove descending from heaven and is like, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. And he's like, I knew it. I knew he was the guy. I grew up with him. Like we played games. I pulled his hair. We played hide and seek. I gave him a wedgie. And now he's the guy. I'm doomed. That's probably what I would have thought. I don't know how you interact with your cousins. I would have thought I was doomed. And he figures out he's the guy. Then, by the way, he goes to everybody else. He's like, hey, behold the Lamb of God. And then we fast forward and we see him later. And good news for people like you and me. He's sitting in a jail cell going, wait a minute, is he the guy? How many are like, I needed that today? Just like, he's the guy. Are you sure he's the guy? That's my story in a nutshell right there. But you can see his faith doesn't start with, okay, now John the Baptist, I want to sit down. I want to tell you from Isaiah that I am the Messiah and I want to talk to you. Like Jesus wasn't running Sunday school for John the Baptist. It was an encounter, right? We keep, continue to fast forward through there. We get Nathaniel. Um, I love this story. It's like Jesus as creepy stalker. So uh, Nathaniel is under the tree, and he comes to meet Jesus, and Jesus is like, I saw you under the tree. <laughs> How many of you just be like, um, can I call 911 now? Because that's a little creepy. I was hanging out by myself. Where were you lurking? Uh, Jesus lurking at there. And Jesus looks at him, and he's like, hey, you're going to see even more amazing things than this. What he doesn't say to him is, hey, you had a supernatural encounter with me. Now let me get you a Bible. 
Again, not, not that the Bible's not important. We're going to come back to that. But this genesis of faith for Nathaniel starts with a supernatural encounter with the miraculous person of Jesus Christ. We continue through the Gospel of John. We have the disciples at the wedding of Cana. He manifests his glory to them, right? We have the woman at the, Samaria, at, the, at the well, which I think is fantastic. Can you imagine you're having a theological conversation with someone after church here today? Maybe you as pastors. You're a visitor here today. Is there any? I don't want to know. You're, you're here today, and you're a visitor, and you're talking to the pastors, and let's imagine that you're just visiting here today, and you're a normal human like us. Any sinners in the house? Anybody who's ever sinned in the house? Okay, cool. I am definitely one of those. I just told you I got saved on acid. So yes, that sinners in the house, and you're talking to them, you're a normal human being, which means you're probably broken like the rest of us. And all of a sudden, in the middle of talking, you're like, yeah, I have questions about God. And they're just like, yeah, anyway, I kind of want to talk to you about your pornography addiction and how you were watching this specific website yesterday, blah, 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 blah. How many of you would be freaking out? That's this situation, right? She's like, hey, I want to talk a little theology and argue about God with you. And he's like, yeah, but not until we talk about the fact that you've been married four times. Now you're shacking up with this particular guy, and you are a complete train wreck, honey kind of puts his arm around it. And he's not being mean or judgmental. He's just like, I want to give you like real help. I don't want to argue about your theology. I want to give you like real help. Your life is a train wreck. I want to forgive you. I want to give you a new life. I want you to have life-giving relationships for the rest of your life. That's, that's what I designed you for, is for life and for flourishing. But again, it doesn't start with the Bible. It starts with what? In fact, if anything, he pulls her away from a discussion about the Bible and gets her to an encounter with the resurrected, well, resurrected Christ in the future, Right? We have the official son who's healed, results in faith in Christ. We have the guy at the pool of Bethesda who's healed, results in faith in Christ. And you can go through and read in every single instance in the Gospel of John, every single person who comes to faith comes to faith one way. They come to faith through a supernatural encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ. You say, well, that's, that's Jesus, Jesus' ministry. Well, I mean, let's look at the book of Acts. Start walking through the book of Acts. We have the lame beggar healed, leads to faith in Christ. They don't look, now remember, they're, they're actually on the way to go and be at temple and worship God and interact with the teaching of Holy Scripture, which we should. But they don't say to him, hey, look, there's a lame guy. We should totally invite him to church. That way he can hear the Bible. That's what we, we would often do. Instead, they look at him and they go, look, there's a lame guy. He should have a supernatural encounter with the resurrected, work of, uh, resurrected power of Jesus Christ, and then the Bible will matter to him. But what he needs first is an encounter with Jesus. See, that don't sort of get that methodology messed up. We have Simon. He has a miraculous encounter with Christ. We have the Ethiopian eunuch. How would you like to be known by your worst physical attribute for the rest of your life? It's like, we'd like to introduce you, JP, the slightly pudgy middle-aged baldy. Like every time that I get introduced, that's not how I would want to be known, but that's the guy. He's the Ethiopian eunuch, and it's super personal, kind of. But he's the Ethiopian eunuch. He gets introduced, and of course, he comes to faith by a supernatural encounter with Christ. We have Saul slash Paul. He has a miraculous encounter with Christ, leads to faith. You get the idea. And yet, sometimes we have this deal where we want to bring someone in and we're like, okay, I want you to be a Christian. Now let's start at the beginning. The Bible was created in six literal days. The Bible is a book of science. Whales can swallow people. Take you to the ark. Believe! And that's just not the way. I mean, how, there may be somebody in here that that was your story. But I can tell you, I've been in a lot of churches. I've heard a lot of people's stories. If that is your story, you are unique. And that's not bad. All of our stories are unique. But most people, their journey with Jesus Christ belong, starts at a moment of need and a supernatural encounter with the resurrected Christ. 
But it's weird. It's like all of a sudden when we become Christians, we're like, okay, now I've had my supernatural encounter with the resurrected Christ. Give me my Bible. And we need to do that. But the point of the Bible is to help us understand and process our encounter with a resurrected Christ, not to be a replacement for our encounter with a resurrected Christ. So the call of Scripture is always to encounter. The call of Scripture is always to an ongoing, and if we want to use, you know, for those of us that were raised in the, in the church of the 80s, 90s, and 2000s, I'm looking out and some of you are going, I wasn't born. Okay, that's fine. You know, that, that the point of it is relationship with Christ. And sometimes we can make that sound cliche, but that's real and that's supernatural and that's profound and that's life-changing and life-giving. And that is the thing we are being called to. In fact, sometimes I think we gravitate back to Scripture because relationship is harder, right? Because maybe we're having some lack in that particular area. Now, the question then is sort of how do we get to this point then where we believe that Scripture is the thing that actually leads to the growth of my faith versus a continual ongoing encounter with a person, the resurrected person of Jesus Christ. I'm actually stolen this from your pastor. This isn't true. He stole it from me. And I stole it from somebody else, probably, or I made it up, one of the two. Um, but it is actually uh, very, very formative. For those of us uh, that have maybe been, been raised in the church or we have attended church in another church setting, especially if you've been in kind of a full gospel Pentecostal kind of church, um, the passage that we love to use is Romans 10, right? And we're like, so faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So you got to read your Bible. If you wanna have faith, read your Bible. The problem is, is that is put, that has to go up in the top five worst translations in scripture history. And it starts at the Reformation. I won't go through the whole history of it. But at the Reformation, the whole deal is we need to pull away from tradition. And we need to anchor our faith in something other than the authority of, church, of the church. And that thing becomes scripture. And by the way, that's a great move. I mean, I'm glad we made that move. There's nothing wrong with that. Um, but how many know when you want to make a point, sometimes you fudge on the facts a little to overstate your case? How many of you in an argument have ever overstated your case? Come on, be honest. So the truth you are raising her hand. That is not fair at all. He's just like, no, she's guilty of it all the time. Put both hands up, dear, or God will strike you dead. And I think the reformers did a little bit of that. And so they come on the scene and they translate this, Romans 10, 17. So faith comes by hearing and hearing from the word of, and you can finish it, word of God. But the fact is in the Greek, it is the logos of Christu. It's the word of Christ, not the word of God. Word of Christ is just shorthand for the experienced gospel of Jesus Christ. So the thing that is generative of faith isn't our interaction with scripture, he says, faith comes by hearing, and hearing by your having an encounter with the word of Christ. If we go and we do that out through the rest of the New Testament, it's, it's the gospel. It's the person of Jesus Christ. Come and made in the flesh and now made manifest by the spirit in the church. So our faith now doesn't come from me going, oh my goodness, I'm having a crisis of faith. I gotta get my Bible promise, promises out. Now, if you need a Bible promise to get you to an encounter with God, nothing wrong with that at all. Trust scripture, but the scripture will not give you faith. Jesus will give you faith. Jesus is the one who brings that kind of encounter. It's interesting that if we look at 
go back and look at the gospel writers, they tell us that we come to faith in two different ways. We come to faith by experiencing the goodness of God through the community of faith. John chapter 17, that if we love one another as the Father and the Son and the Spirit love one another, if we are one as they are one, that the world will know, and by the way, we will also know that Jesus has come and has loved us because we'll experience it in this community, which is awesome. It's the call of the community. That's why, that's why in 1 Corinthians 13, Paul says, if you split the church, God will kill you. That's right in the Bible. Isn't that crazy? Some of you are like, oh, these altars are open. I don't know. There's, no, there's, no, there's nobody like that here. But that's a big deal. And the other way is a, res- is a supernatural encounter with Jesus. There's no time in all of the Gospels where someone says, hey, if you believe this Bible verse, you're, that's, that's going to be the deal for you. It is always encounter and the love of God actually experienced through the people of Jesus in community. That's the two ways that faith grow according to the Gospels. So um, does that make sense to make that little bit of a move that we're going to move from, and, and we can sort of nod our heads or not nod our heads, or I'm still thinking about it, to make that little bit of a move of from thinking about Scripture as something that gives faith to think about something that either in invites us to Christ to experience, to have more faith, or helps us understand our experience with Christ so that we can process our faith, that that fundamentally is the role of Scripture. Cool. So now that we've kind of made that little bit of a move, I want to give a second observation, that is that Holy Scripture, at the end of the day, is actually historically trustworthy and has been preserved reliably. At the church that, uh, where I serve, at Grand Rapids First, uh, we did a Man on the Street series a few years ago, and basically it was just uh, uh, some of our team going out and talking to people who live in Grand Rapids, which by the way, most evangelical churches in a major city in the United States, and so you think if anywhere you're going to get all the good Bible answers, it would be Grand Rapids. <laughs> Turned out that wasn't the case. Um, which was good. It means that we still have a reason to exist at, at, in our community, which is great. If everybody's a Christian, I think we ought to just move on. Um, but what was interesting is when we asked people what you believed about Scripture, three ideas popped up over and over and over and over and over again. And they were these. There was the observation that Scripture, they would say, well, I just believe that Scriptures were written by people. Um, the answer to that is yes, but we'll address that in a moment, what I think they actually mean by that. The second thing that people question is that they had often heard, because very few people have actually done the research themselves, and that's okay, but they have heard that Scripture was not historically anchored, and it was historically inaccurate in some way, shape, or form. We'll deal with that for just a a few moments. And then people questioned whether after thousands of years the scriptures hadn't been changed. The fact is, is that up until the oldest manuscript that we have is from about 1000 AD. That's a lot of time passage before there. And so people are like, hey, yeah, we've all played the game telephone, right? And we all know I just demonstrated that the reformers were willing to change a text a little bit in order to make a point. Who's to say that didn't happen over and 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 over again so that by the time we get to our first manuscripts at 1000 AD, that is nothing like what the original people wrote. Those are the three ideas that come up over and over and over again. So I want to deal with those just in kind of order if I can, just to anchor us that the fact is the scripture that you have is actually a wonderfully preserved and historically valuable document in that way. Not that I think that's the only thing that's important about Scripture, but I do think it's important that you believe that the Scripture you have actually is something like what God intended you to have. I do think that's actually quite important. So for the first question, I can actually affirm for you that the Scriptures were written by humans. (laughs) It's probably not a surprise to anybody. God didn't walk up to anybody and sort of, you know, stick his hand up their backside and like and write the scripture. In fact, if we take Paul seriously, he actually is, says in Corinthians, he says, I think I have the mind of God on this while he's writing scripture. That tells us he doesn't even know he's writing the Bible. 
Okay, so it's not like the people are like, ooh, never felt a feeling like this before, you know, and they just start writing, and they know this is God, and they're participating in the act of writing Scripture. God is using humans. In fact, if you go to Scripture and you read it, it doesn't, it doesn't say, hey, the epistle of God to the Romans, the epistle of God to the Ephesians, it says the epistle of Paul, right? Because we acknowledge that there are human authors involved in this process. In fact, not only are there authors, but there are compilers and there are editors involved in this process. If we take... Seriously, Exodus 24, it says Moses wrote down everything that the Lord said. Often we take that to say, oh, so Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible. He put the period at the end of it. He sent it off to his publisher, and there we go. But the fact is, if we take sort of later, uh, Numbers chapter 12, you know, the classic passage, it says that Moses is the humblest man on earth. I don't know. It just seems weird to me that he would write that himself. I suppose you could be like, he was so compelled by the Spirit that he could say it with a pure heart. Okay, whatever. I mean, that's fine. I mean, I mean, I mean this seriously. If that's what you want to believe, that's totally cool. That's, that's totally, I'd rather you have too high of a view of Scripture than too low of a view of Scripture. But I have to say that for me, for me, when you get to Deuteronomy 34, and Moses describes in firsthand detail his own funeral, that starts to get a little creepy. He, he starts telling like what his funeral is actually like. How many, I mean, that's, that's tough. That's tough. I mean, you've either got to be to like uh, resurrected Moses authoring, talking from the dead to somebody or like prophesying his own funeral in detail. I don't know. I, somehow you got to get there. But the fact is that most evangelicals in the academic community believe, yeah, that's because there are editors and compilers involved, that Moses did steward all of these stories and traditions. But at some point, people gather together and say, we need to formalize these things so that we can have some kind of static teaching for the church. And that's important. That's good. There's nothing wrong with that. But it's not a replacement for God, right? There's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with us having doctrine. There's nothing wrong with us having teachings. There's nothing wrong with any of that. But, you know, Jesus says something really important in the Gospel of John to the Pharisees and Sadducees. He says to them, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have life. That's so fascinating. He actually says exactly the point that we're making this morning. He actually says to them, I'm glad that you're searching the scriptures. I think he's affirming that. But you're searching them for the wrong thing. No text is ever going to give you life. It's an encounter with the resurrected Christ. No, no Bible study is going to bring the kind of healing and restoration and that we need. Now, it might facilitate it, but our understanding of text intellectually, our ability to iterate a doctrine or memorize Bible passages or those sorts of things, those things really, at the end of the day, don't add anything to our spiritual life unless we take them to their logical conclusion and we use them as a way of understanding who God is better so that we can encounter him more faithfully and more personally, right? Does that make sense a little bit? If you can maybe imagine it this way, John Newton in 1779 wrote the hymn Amazing Grace, and most of us are probably familiar with that, and then 320 years later, Matt Redman decided to come along, and he's like, you know, this, this sucker needs a bridge and a chorus, you know, so he's like, my chains are gone, and, and, and somewhere John Newton is like, that was a masterpiece, bro, but uh, he adds to it, and you can kind of think of the history of Scripture that way, like John Newton is Moses, and he's written all of this beautiful stuff, and then Matt Redman is like, you know, we need, I, we need to situate this in the modern context, 
I'm going to add this to it, and now it becomes Scripture. And by the way, you believe, if you, if you read Scripture, you believe in compilers and editors already. The book of Psalms, that is not every psalm that David ever wrote or anybody ever wrote. That is the particular psalms that that editor believed that they were wanted to have in a book, and God was superintending that process. The book of Proverbs, it's by written by all kinds of different people, and you believe, and I believe, that an editor at some point was moved by the Spirit to go ahead and bring all of those things to one place and to preserve them in Scripture. So you already, and I already believe that God can use editors and, and God can use compilers and so on and so forth. So don't be freaked out by all this stuff when someone says to you, well, the, the Bible's a human book. Absolutely it is. And I'm actually glad because God is in the business of doing human stuff. God is just in the business of doing perfect things through humans. I mean, he says, you are the church and I'm gonna build a church through you that the gates of hell will not prevail against. Now, I don't know about you. I know myself. I am 100% human. 110% maybe on my worst days. And yet God says through the vehicle of me, he's going to do something perfect. He's going to do something amazing. He's going to do something spectacular. My first kind of passion after I became a Christian was church history. And I can tell you people have been talking about the lack of historical reliability of the scriptures forever. From the first century, talking about the Old Testament, all the way through, uh, it has been a consistent theme. But I wanna give you just a, a couple of examples of things that have demonstrated for us over the last, oh, 100 years or so. The scripture in terms of its historical reliability and transmission is actually pretty solid. Um, a lot of people don't realize this, that up until about 100 years ago, there were uh, about 50 fairly substantial characters in the Old Testament that we had no historical verification ever lived on earth. The only verification we had for them was in scripture, and in documents derived from scripture. One of those is actually a pretty big deal, and it's some guy named David. I don't, I don't know how many knew that, that up until about 50 years ago, we had no historical verifiability, I'm sorry, it was actually a little, a little, uh, little more recent than that, or a little longer than that. And we had, no, we had no historical data that David was actually a real person. So the only way, now how many know when, when it says that the Messiah is gonna come from the seed of David and David becomes this like, he's a huge deal in the Old Testament, right? All the way from Samuel, all the way up through the Psalms and the Solomonic movement and then the prophets hearken back to David over and over again. He's a big deal. If he's not a real guy, like we gotta ask serious questions. And um, so after this sort of thing has been going around for a while and becomes a challenge to the church over and over and over again. The interesting thing happened, and it's not very long ago, it's actually this 1993, and I don't know if you guys got that slide of the Tel Dan style. No, do you guys have that? There you go. So this bad boy was discovered a number of years ago, and it's actually a black basalt inscription. 1993, so we're talking actually not that long ago. I, I, that's the year I came to Christ, March of March, uh, March of that year, I was wandering around on acid, became a Christian, there you go. And they were wandering around in the desert finding black basalt stels. This is called the Tel Dan Stel, and um, the beautiful thing about it is as they're reading this thing, and they all of a sudden realize they had something very important on their hands because it dates from somewhere around 900 BC. Uh, 900 BC. And this inscription right on here all of it talk, talks about a battle with the Arameans, and all of a sudden you read the line that it says, and they were defeated by the armies of the king of Israel, David. And boom, there we go. After 2,000 years of people challenging the church, saying you don't even have historical verifiability for the whole sort of architecture of where your Messiah comes from, there we see it pop up 
in church history. And we could go over and over and over and over and over with all those kinds of examples. But I think a, a, a couple of things, you can pull up that quote if you want. If someone comes to you and says they don't believe scripture, this is actually something, I don't know if they still issue it. They issued it up until a few years ago. People over and over again, usually Christians who are like, you know, trying to, trying to, you know, get someone to substantiate their faith. But how many know the blind dude who's been healed doesn't need someone to tell him that his faith is legit, right? So we don't anchor our faith in Scripture. But this is an example of what I think often we do as Christians. People kept writing the Smithsonian Department of Anthropology, basically trying to get them to talk about Scripture. And so they designed a, basically a release they would send to everyone who contacted them. And this is what it says. Now you have to read between the lines a little bit too, because what they're not saying is it's the Word of God. So don't get too excited. The Smithsonian isn't saying that you have the Word of God in your hand, okay? As I hold my iPad up. But anyway. Much of the Bible, in particular, the historical books of the Old Testament, are as accurate historical documents as any that we have from antiquity, and are in fact more accurate than many of the Egyptian, Mesopotamian, or Greek histories. These biblical records can be and are used as are other ancient documents and archaeological work. And why don't you go ahead and pull up that next slide for me too. Um, this is a Bart Ehrman, if you're not familiar with him. He makes uh, this sort of second argument about manuscripts, manuscripts being that they were copied and copied and copied and copied and copied and copied by hand, and by the time we get to the documents that we have now, they're nothing like what the originals intended. And uh, he came, became quite popular here about 12 years ago, and is still fairly influential. He's at University of North Carolina, originally from Princeton. He said, not only do we not have the originals of the biblical text, we don't have the first copies of the originals. I love this quote because he's just obviously trying to make his point. We don't even have the copies of the copies of the originals or the copies of the copies of the copies of the originals. Infinity. I just feel like it's a five-year-old in an argument, but whatever. Infinity. But we, ha but we have our copies made later, much later. In most instances, they are copies made many centuries later. And these copies all differ from one another in many thousands of places. Now, I lack the time to tear that apart uh, sort of piece by piece. But when he talks about many thousands of spaces, generally speaking, what he's talking about is legitimately spaces and differences in how the old text, which didn't contain spaces, sentences, or paragraphs, how those things got sliced and diced. He's not actually talking about words being changed in the text themselves. And he's being a little bit duplicitous there. But I want to give you one little uh, piece of, of history that will kind of help you maybe have a little bit more confidence that that's not the case. Um, so I met, previously mentioned that the oldest document that we had, the oldest manuscript that we have was about a thousand years, from about 1000 AD. Now that is a long time before the original doc, or a long time after the original documents are written, right? So uh, something very important happened in the 1940s and that is we discovered the Dead Sea Scrolls. And uh, th that was a game changer. Um, although in a way, again, it got us back to, that's right, see our Bible, our Bible, our Bible. And I'm like, ah, spoil it again. But um, uh, the fascinating thing was they discovered something in there uh, called the Isaiah scroll, which was a complete intact scroll of the entire prophet of Isaiah, or if you want to be British, Isaiah. Doesn't it sound so much smarter when you say Isaiah, channeling our NT right? Um, and so this thing now dates from probably about 1,100 years earlier than the document that our previously older document. So if Bar Ehrman is right, everyone follow the logic on this, the document that they found at the Dead Sea Scrolls should be drastically different than the one that we have from 1000 AD. Because Bar Ehrman's logic is it's been copied and copied and copied and copied, and over that time people have made errors and people have inserted things and deleted things to feed their own agendas. 
they went ahead, they pulled out the Isaiah scroll, and it is in all points of any importance 100% identical to what we have in the Masoretic text 1,100 years later. So you have in your hand or on your phone or wherever you have it, you have a very historically reliably transmitted document. Now we can talk about how we interpret that, how we interact with that, but I don't want you to have any lack of confidence whatsoever. You have the document that the original people wrote that has been faithfully preserved for the church. And even those who are most doggedly committed to source criticism, document criticism of the text, how does the text develop over time? Um, the fact is the vast majority, when they end up doing the research, they end up finding out this is a pretty darn good text. It has been remarkably preserved. We actually have more ancient texts for this than we have for the writings of Plato, than we have for the writings of any first century philosopher. You're in good shape when you're reading scripture in terms of historical reliability, okay? Um, and third point, let me make this quickly because I know I need to wrap up. And then in a minute, uh, Drew's gonna come up and make me sound spiritual. I'll, I'll nod to you when I'm ready to be spiritual, okay? Kind of wink, the spiritual wink. I love that about music. Some people are like, music is manipulative. I'm like, it's supposed to be. God designed it to elevate us, to make us realize there's something more happening. And he used our emotions to do that. I think it's a good thing. Anyway, just my little two cents. Um, the third is this. Intellectual doubt, uh, for some, is a normal part of their Christian life. As I mentioned, this is, this is pretty important for me. Um, how many, uh, you don't have to, if you want, I don't know how y'all do this. Um, but how many would say that some kind of intellectual doubt has been a significant part of your journey of walking with Jesus? Cool, yeah. And the rest of you, I'm super jealous of you. Like my wife, she, you know, she got baptized in utero in the fluids <laughs> and she came out and cooed in tongues and she, she like stole a paperclip when she was three. That was her big like sin crisis. And she's never doubted. She's never had questions. She's like, you know, mission at star. Like how she ended up with me, I have no idea. It was a pity case, I think. And, um, you know, that's just not how she rolls. Like, she's never had that deal. Um, I, ha I have to have, like, an fresh encounter with Jesus every 20 minutes because uh, I have questions about human suffering and, and all of that and how it interacts with life. And I just want you to know, like, it's cool. Like, it, God gives people different gifts, and all of our gifts have different downsides to them and different upsides to them. And um, if you think about it from the perspective of a parent, if your child... Uh, came into you every day and, were, and was like, I did, something, I did something bad again, or something bad happened. Like, do you still love me, and are you still there? Like, I don't know. I mean, are you ever really going to get tired of that? I don't know. Maybe on, your, maybe on your bad day, on your sinner day. But on your good days, you're not. You're going to be like, isn't that sweet? My kid loves me enough that they want to continually be affirmed, want to continually know that I'm there for them, and I love them, and I care for them. We had to quit thinking about God like a theologian and an ogre and start thinking about him like a parent, right? And he loves us and cares. And some of us are like, how about not my parents? But okay, I totally understand that. Like a good parent, like the ideal parent, like Beaver Cleaver or something. Um, so for me, this has been a huge deal. And the reason that I, 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 I hopefully want to give some practical help here for a second, if that is you, and for the few of us that, that we say that's been a part of our journey, and for those of you that it's not, by the way, you can't assume that everybody's going to interact with their faith like you are. They're not. Some other people are going to be, they're going to be doubters, and you may not be able to convince them of everything. Do you really want to keep their ability to come to Jesus, do you want to make it contingent on your ability to explain everything to them? Or do we want to be like Jesus, and he's got the blind dude, and he's, the guy's healed, he goes in front of the, the court in Jerusalem, and they're like, who healed you? And he's like, you know, great question, I'll be right back. He doesn't even know. He's still trying to sort it all out. But he, one thing he does know, he's had an encounter that he's got to wrestle with, he's got to wrangle with. It's forever changed his life. 
And um, I want to give a little bit of help, though, for us that, that perhaps have been, been uh, doubters a little bit. And um, I think the, the first thing I would say just flows out of the, the first point, and that is that our, our resource then is not primarily going back to Scripture and saying, God, give me some verse that's going to rescue my faith. Now, we may have a verse that invites us to an encounter with Jesus that rescues our faith, but our faith is ultimately going to be uh, in Christ. In fact, I would argue that we really believe in Scripture because we believe in Christ, not the other way around. God was around a long time before we had a text, right? He was interacting with people a long time before we had a text. And so we kind of have that backwards a little bit. But I want to... um, if I can, read you just a, a, a little bit of a, a passage in the Gospel of John. So the Gospel of John, just briefly, and then I'll, I'll wrap. It deals with a church at the end of the first century who is having a problem, actually a series of problems. And they're probably in Asia Minor. For the first time now in the new church history, people don't know anybody who actually saw Jesus like in the flesh. Most of the people there, now they might have someone like John who might visit, and he knew, but nobody in the church actually saw Jesus. We know historically from the councils that were happening in Ephesus at the time that miracles are on the decrease. I don't know about you, but when I see a miracle, my faith increases. Miracles are on the decrease, and we know that people are suffering. That most of the churches in Asia Minor actually had been exiled from Rome. They were kicked out of there, and so they've lost everything. They're like, wait a minute. I had nothing when I was on the devil's team. I got on God's team. I kind of thought things might be a little better with my life, and they're having this little sort of crisis. And so to answer those three questions, um, oh, and by, oh, the other question was um, people who, who were unable to be martyred, they couldn't do it, or they had failed morally in some way, could they be restored to the faith? That was the other kind of hot-button theological issue. So if you had been called to be a martyr, and you were like, what? Jesus never heard of them. And could you actually still be a Christian? And so what's interesting is the three main stories in the Gospel of John answer those three questions. We have Peter, who fails ethically. You know, he's got his swear jar out, and he's yelling, and so on and so forth. And he fails in terms of suffering for Jesus. And the answer very clearly is, by the way, not because of Scripture, but because of an encounter with the resurrected Christ, yes, he can be restored to the faith. People were having a problem with sort of the question of, uh, I'm suffering, and what do I do about that? We have the story of Mary and Martha and Lazarus, and that story follows the exact same arc as the story of Peter. When we meet them, they're awesome, then they fail, then they have an encounter with Jesus and resurrection, and they, their faith is restored and renewed. The one that we don't talk about as often is that guy doubting Thomas, right? He even gets called that. We've got the eunuch and doubting Thomas. Everybody gets known by their worst quality. It's horrible. We should have a church service where everyone does their name badge with their worst name. It's awful. Don't ever do that. Um, And so Thomas follows exactly the same trajectory. When we first meet him, he's like, hey, Jesus is going to Jerusalem. Let's all go and die with him. But then when Jesus dies and is resurrected, he's the one who isn't there. He's the one who doesn't get it. And he's like, hey, you got to show me the hands. You got to show me your side. In fact, I've actually got to touch him. I got to put my finger in him because I can't even trust my eyes. My doubt is that profound. That's how significant my doubt is. And, and here's the deal. I think for many of us, we read that and we go, wait a minute. So the, the solution for Mary and Martha's doubt was an encounter with the resurrected Christ, the resurrection power of Christ through Lazarus. The solution for Peter's doubt of whether he can still be loved by God because of his sin and his failure The answer to that is an encounter with the resurrected Christ. 
And the answer to Thomas's sort of intellectual doubt is an encounter with the resurrected Christ. Where does that leave me? Because last time I checked, Jesus isn't here. And this is where the linchpin of the Gospel of John, and you can come up and make me sound spiritual now. I'm sorry, I don't, I don't, I'm not very good at subtlety. This is where, um, in the middle of the Gospel of John, and it's seated there strategically by John, we have a two-chapter-long discourse about the coming of the Spirit. And John does that on purpose because he knows that his original first century readers, when they read this, they're going to be like, so basically the moral of the story is it's horrible to be us because Jesus is already gone and we're hopeless. Because the only thing that restores faith is an encounter with the resurrected Christ. And guess what? He took off. And so John, very strategically, in the middle of his, go- his, middle of his gospel, puts chapter 14 through 16. And I have to tell you, he says what I think is one of the most challenging things for me. Because for me, I sometimes think to myself, man, if Jesus were here, anybody ever think that? I mean, in my moment of pain, in my moment of doubt, in my moment of unbelief, in my moment of wrestling with, is God real? What does that mean for suffering? In my moment of, can God actually rectify this situation that I'm involved in? Or is it just too screwed up for God to be a part of? For me, I go and read the Gospels, and I'm just like, man, if Jesus were here, he would be able to sort this out. Guess I'll read my Bible. Does that math feel familiar? And for John, he's just like, no, you you don't get it. You've got to take the words of Jesus seriously. And here's what he says in John chapter 16. Jesus says, I'm telling you the truth. It's actually better than I'm not with you. For if I don't go away, the Spirit can't come. But if I go, I'll send him to you. Continuing down in verses 13 and 14, he says, when the Spirit comes, he'll guide you into all truth. He won't speak of his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he'll declare it to you, the things that are to come, and he will glorify me. And he will take what is mine, and he will declare it to you. I think we have just touch the surface as the community of faith of the reality of what the Holy Spirit wants to do in our lives. And sometimes what happens is because we have a lack of the love that we need to experience in the community and a lack of the supernatural presence of Jesus, we fall back on scripture and say, well, at least we've got the Bible but the Bible won't do what you and I need. And so here's what I'd like to do this morning. The Bible, like I said, it can, we just use the Bible to tell ourselves we don't need the Bible, we need Jesus. So the Bible's important, but the Bible will never replace that supernatural experience with Jesus by the work of the Spirit. And so here's what I want us to do. I understand that at the end of every service, if I totally screw this up, you come up and bail me out, okay, if I say it wrong that you do, that you take the Lord's Supper, you take communion. Is that true? Every, every week? Cool. Spurgeon did that. Did you know that? There you go. 
Um, and so here's, here's what I want us to do, and I think this is actually a really great time to do it because when Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper, he says, as often as you do this, you proclaim my death until I come. The context of that is that he's coming back to fulfill the ministry of the Spirit. The Spirit is present and active. And so here's, here's what I want us to do. What I do. They're just coming up. What I do. Oh, they're going to bring it out. I thought they were security. <laughs> it's like the, her- the heresy police. I think you crossed the line, mister. I thought those guys were going to take me out. It's happened before, so I'm a little jumpy. I get a little jumpy. It hasn't, but I kind of am hoping one of these days. Um, so here's what I want us to do. In those, can you all understand that in, when we take the Lord's Supper, we don't believe that it is the body and it is the blood, but we do believe that somehow these, these physical elements they help us think about God in a way that's deeply spiritual and, and we experience God because of that, right? Does that make sense? So it's just easier to think about the body of God being broken when we have something broken in our hand. We're built that way. It's easier to think about the combination of, of the goodness and the pain of the blood of Jesus when we have something that's colored like it, but yet sweet at the same time. It's easier because we're always trying to think about spiritual things from physical experiences we have. And so it's a little bit telling because what I'm asking you to do today is when, when you read scripture to not stop there. Just like I don't want you to eat this and stop there and go, okay, I've had Jesus. Nom, 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 nom. We all know that would be completely inappropriate. You haven't had Jesus. You haven't had Jesus until you've used this to, by the Spirit, think on Christ, and it's become real in your heart. I'm asking you to approach your Scripture in the same way. Think, this, this isn't Jesus, but it has the capacity to get me to Jesus. And the work of the Spirit is to make that happen. And so, in just a moment, I'm going to pray. I'll let... Uh, Drew, lead us. And here's what I'm going to ask, that as you take communion and you think about God's love for you, his grace for you, you think about his forgiveness of you, his desire for you, that you ask God two things. One, that a little transformative work would happen, that the next time that you pick up your scriptures and you're, you're, you're saying, I, I want to, and I, I, the phrase is great, I want to spend time with Jesus. That's great. But spending time with scripture and spending time with Jesus aren't synonyms that we begin to make that leap, that the scriptures are there just to, just to help me understand what it means to experience God and to help me process the experience I'm having God. But if I don't have an experience with God, I, I haven't spent time with God. I've just read the Bible. It's two fundamentally different things. And then the second thing I'm gonna ask you is that if you have a moment right now where it might be Peter's story, you have a moral, ethical failure, and you're going, I just don't know if God can love me anymore. I think you know the theological answer to that. But it's not doing you any good, is it? You need an encounter with the resurrected Christ by the Spirit of God. Maybe you're having an intellectual doubt. And you know, you've, done, you've read the books, you've read the websites, you've watched the debates, you know all the answers to the, the constructed questions, and, but that's not 
not helping you, is it? Be an encounter with the resurrected Christ. That's not a judgment. I, I get it. I need it all the time. Or maybe your situation is so overwhelming, you've seen so much suffering and hardship, you wonder whether God is good and where is God in the midst of all this. You know the answer. God is good all the time. Clap on the syncopated rhythm. But it's not helping, is it? It's not helping. You need an encounter with the resurrected Christ. So I'm going to pray. I'm going to ask you to come and using this as a metaphor to invite the Spirit of God in just the next few moments to give you a real experience with Him, a renewing, and to reestablish the direction of our heart as we think about our faith. Father, I thank you for today. I thank you for the great people at Courage Church. I thank you for the leaders. Thank you for the people that have invested here to love this community in your name. But wouldn't it be a shame, Jesus, if in the context of fulfilling your ministry, there was a huge chasm in our heart that we, we have been trying to heal and make whole with a book that only you can fill, that only a real encounter with your spirit can make whole. You know, there's some people here right now and you are thinking, my grief is so profound. The whole, I'm scared to even be honest about the brokenness that's in my heart right now because I don't know what would happen if I were honest about it. But I'm telling you, the Holy Spirit of God can take all of that away, can fill you so profoundly. It's not a truth, it's an idea, it's a person of God who loves you. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Holy Spirit. Thank you, God. Thank you for your scripture. But thank you, God, that we can have a real life encounter with you. Right here today. Thank you, Jesus, for sending the Spirit. For your truth. God, for the world around us that we can experience you through for the community that we're part of and the community that we encounter, the surprises that you have for us and the world around us, that we can know you authentically, intimately, and that by knowing you, we become more and more whole the way you designed us and that you have that wholeness for us a little bit more every single day. Thank you for your encounter. We love you, Jesus. Hallelujah. The dust. God created us from dust, not clay. When scientists go to another planet and there's dust and no water, there's no sign of life. The very thing that made us dust, no sign of life to humanity that we are today is the breath, the spirit of God. That is the same thing that makes this scripture come alive and be something. Maybe it's dust, but partnered with the spirit, 
everything you encounter is God. All the good things. And that encounter, encountering the character of God, the spirit of God, that's what makes us whole. That's what brings healing. That's how we know what the, the original intention for who you're made to be is. We have to have that encounter. Don't stop reading your scripture. Yes, you basically have a master's degree now. How does it feel? We'll have a graduation ceremony after. Take it in. Take in his sweet presence. This is why we continue the conversation. Because it's not just there. We have to encounter it. We read it together. We talk about it. We express how, the, how God is encountering us through the scripture. We have to talk about it. There is an encounter to be had. And if you're not having that encounter, please, let's talk about it. Show up to Shane on Tuesday. It's, just, it's more of this, guys. If you enjoyed this, if your brain exploded, you'll recover and come back Tuesday. <laughs> Wrestle with that encounter. The breath of God that made us from dust is that spirit is the same spirit that Jesus sent and it's the same spirit that we still have now that when we sit at the table when we have conversations when you sit in this community of faith and you cry with each other and you laugh with each other and you have arguments with each other it's the same spirit that we carry and the people at the bank or the grocery store or the homeless person on the side of the road that you stop and ask if it's warm enough for them today. That spirit is the spirit you carry and you live your life with. Take that spirit. Encounter the world. Let people encounter the living God through your smile, hug, encouragement, whatever that is. Be faithful to that. Show up. Come join us for a meal at the table. Look somebody in the face that is not treated with dignity, or maybe is and has a lot of pride, I don't know, and treat them the way God sees them. Listen to their story. Share your story with them and let them encounter the spirit of God that we encounter when we read scripture, that we encounter when we're here, that we encounter when the day we met Jesus. It's so important. It all matters so much. Galatians talks about the law is a guardian, a tutor. And this is this family slave, basically. It doesn't matter if it's a slave. It's a family person they hire who takes the children to school. This tutor, this guardian, never teaches the children anything. They just make sure that they safely make it to the place where they are to encounter knowledge. Can we see scripture that way? It's something that helps us get there. It helps guide us this place. It helps guide us. And it teaches us a lot. But the thing that really teaches us is that encounter. <laughs>